It's February 21st, 1970. The dawn of a new decade finds the U.S. in the middle of the Vietnam War and divided. Across the country, anti-war protesters are doing everything they can to express their dislike of the battle and the military draft, which could select any young male to serve overseas. In Washington, a report is submitted to President Richard Nixon. The 214-page document summarizes months of research by a commission headed by Thomas S. Gates Jr., the former Secretary of Defense in the Eisenhower administration. The group had been tasked with looking into the viability of eliminating the draft and replacing it with an all-volunteer force. Gates, like many in the military, was skeptical of eliminating the draft. But seeing how well the United Kingdom had transitioned years earlier, and also how even economists sided with the change, Gates came to a very simple decision. We unanimously believe that the nation's interests will be better served by an all-volunteer force, supported by an effective stand-in draft than by a mixed force of volunteers and conscripts. We have satisfied ourselves that a volunteer force will not jeopardize national security, and we believe it will have a beneficial effect on the military as well as the rest of our society. It took another three years for the recommendations to be implemented, but in July 1973, the Army officially switched to an all-volunteer force. The implementation, like most organizational transitions, had its rocky moments, but quickly proved to be a game-changer for the entire military and country. It's now been 50 years, and in that time, the U.S. Army has been tested in a number of international campaigns and battles. And through it all, its structures, soldiers, and officers have become models for nations around the world. Today, hosts Les and Dan sit down with two generals to talk about the all-volunteer force. General retired Carter Ham, the former commander of United States Africa Command, as well as our former president at AUSA, talks about what it was like enlisting in the Army just months after the official policy change in 1973. And after that, Lieutenant General Walter F. Pyatt, the Army's current director of Army staff, shares what the organization is doing to celebrate the AVF's 50th anniversary. I'm Carrie Viroheikis, and I'd like to volunteer to tell you that this is Army Matters. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another Army Matters podcast. And I am your host, the 15th Sergeant of the Army. 
And I have the honor and privilege of interviewing someone who is no stranger to the Association of the United States Army or the Army itself. Uh, he's been around a long time. He's a respected leader known by many, and especially around here in the AUSA community. So I'm just going to jump right in and introduce our guest for today because uh, he's a personal friend. He was uh, someone I uh, tried to emulate throughout my career as a leader and just a gentleman that has given a large portion of his life to our Army and to our great nation, General uh, Retired Carter Ham. General Ham, welcome to the show. Well, SMA Daily, thanks thanks very much. My, my children would not know who you were speaking of in that introduction, <laughs> but thank you for that very generous introduction. <laughs> well, thank you, sir, for joining the show. And the uniqueness of General Ham's experience is he is one of very few individuals in the U.S. Army history to have enlisted in the United States Army and then achieved the rank of four-star general. Sir, before we get into that, I'd like you to share with our listeners a little bit about yourself. Can you tell us where'd you grow up and how did you first learn about the military? Well, thanks, SMA. Um, I say I, I mostly grew up in Cleveland, but, but that's only kind of true. My dad was in the Navy in World War II. And then after the war, he worked for the General Electric Company. And so I didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of like being an Army kid. We moved every three years. Wow. I was born in Portland, Oregon. We moved to Cleveland, Chicago, Cleveland, Atlanta, Cleveland uh, in the early 1960s. Cleveland is mostly where I grew up. And though we knew my dad had been in the Navy, like many World War II veterans, he didn't talk about that. Mm -hmm. There was an old Navy uniform hanging in his closet uh, he kept one picture of his comrades on his desk, but military service just wasn't a topic of conversation. Uh, and even though growing up in the suburbs of Cleveland, almost all of our dads were World War II or Korea veterans, some of them veterans of both of those wars, mm -hmm. there wasn't really a, a sense of a military culture Okay, so there may not have been much of a military culture in Cleveland at the time, but you did know a thing or two about what was going on. I mean, there was a draft going on, and you had a draft number, right? Can you tell us more about what the draft system was and how it worked in the early 70s? The nation had gone to a, a draft lottery system mm -hmm. in an effort to kind of make the draft more fair, more equitable. Yeah. Uh, they went to a lottery system uh, based on your birth dates. And so when, when my birth year uh, came up for the lottery drawing, my birth date was chosen uh, as number 353. That's an exceedingly high number to be drafted. And so the chances of, of me being drafted were essentially zero with that high a number. You know, if you had a number in the teens or even in the 20s, pretty likely that you would be drafted. A number of 353, I remember being somewhat relieved at the time because, again, the thought of serving in the military had not really crossed my mind. But as we got into the early 70s and the, the war in Vietnam was beginning to to wind down and the demands on the, the size of the deployed force, uh, particularly the army was, uh, was lessening uh, and the, 
the initial talks about the all-volunteer force changed the dynamic and over time changed my thought, my personal thoughts about military service as well. Yeah, so you had a draft number, 353, and you already mentioned that you, you didn't really have much conversation or thought about service in the military, but but you then enlisted. Why did that thought process change and how did that come about? Yeah, to, to be honest, it's still a little bit of a mystery to me. <laughs> As I mentioned, I went to college out of high school because that's kind of what we were expected to to do. But there came a point in my, I guess, my second year of college where I just, there was something missing. There was something uh, not not fulfilled within me. And I didn't quite understand what that was. And I didn't really have an idea of what direction I was headed in. And so I, as I thought about that, something drew me to walk into an Army recruiting station in, in our neighborhood and have an initial conversation about uh, serving in the Army. As I look back on that time, it wasn't really so much a draw to the Army as it was kind of an inner feeling that, hey, you better figure out what you want to do in life, and maybe a couple of years in the Army will give you the opportunity to mature a little bit, yeah, to grow up a little bit, and to kind of get some direction in, in your life. Uh, and I think that's what what drew me to walk into that Army recruiting station. And what year was this that you walked in that recruiting and decided that you were going to enlist in the Army? This was 1973. Okay. So the, the all-volunteer force was just beginning. I think the last draftees were inducted into service in June of 1973. I enlisted uh, in August of 1973. Okay. Yeah, so what was the thought process of the Army at the time? It wasn't an Army decision. It was a national decision. Mm-hmm. I think uh, many of the advisors of, of our senior political leaders up to and including the, the president uh, had been calling for the elimination of the draft uh, and move toward an all-volunteer force. But there was a bit of a sense that the draft drew disproportionately from, for lack of a better term, the the segments of our population that didn't have other options. For example, if you were in college, you got a draft deferment. And, you know, we've heard stories of, of others who were able to get deferments or postponements from the draft for other reasons. I think that played into this sense that the draft was while intended to be equitable, in implementation was not. Yeah. And so there was this sense that that if you move to an all-volunteer force, this would be more equitable and you would have military services filled with the ranks filled with those who wanted to be there, who chose to be there, as opposed to those who were serving involuntarily. Yeah. I think there was a sense that it would certainly be more costly, but that decision was made uh, and implemented in the summer of 1973. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think if we look back on that time and say, was that a good decision? For me, it's a, a no-brainer. If I look at the Army that I joined in 1973, was by any measure the best Army in the world. But if you compare that with the Army of 
50 years later, in 2023, still by far the best army in the world, but no comparison in terms of the qualities, capabilities, the experience level, the value of the all-volunteer force. You served at a time, a very pivotal time, where the Army's making this bold shift. And there's obviously still soldiers, majority of them, that were draftees. And now, all of a sudden, we have enlistees. And you served alongside both of them in the beginning of your career. Did you notice a difference? A little bit. And as I proceeded through training and, and ended up at the 82nd Airborne Division in my first unit of assignment, it was the non-commissioned officers who stood out. Again, many of them had been drafted. Many of the more senior soldiers had also been drafted, but then volunteered for airborne duty. So uh, there was a, something a little special, even in those who had been, had been drafted. Mm -hmm. But I remember in the early days of the all-volunteer force, it was an incredibly diverse group. You had guys like me, comfortably middle class, uh, but you had also non-high school graduates, guys who, who said that they were given a choice by a, a judge or a law enforcement officer, you know, join the army or we're going to charge you with this or that or the other thing. And maybe that was true. Maybe it was just a story. I don't know. But also for me, it was the first time in my life that I was in a group with a whole bunch of people who were not like me, uh, different by race, ethnicity, yeah. background, experience, culture, education. It was an incredibly diverse group much different than I had experienced up to that point in my life. And what I found very interesting, each of us had an individual reason for having enlisted in the Army. And that kind of tied us together. And then, of course, you meet your drill sergeant, and then that very diverse group now has a common enemy. That's right. There's nothing that bonds you better than that. You rally. That's right. You, <laughs> that's you, know, right. you, 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 you bond together uh, against that or you don't survive, frankly. That's right. It was a, a forcing function, I think, to build teamwork. Oh, yes, the drill sergeant. I remember mine vividly. Drill Sergeant Smith would wake me up every single morning by quietly throwing me out of my bed. Now, I'm going to throw something at you. If you hadn't enlisted, if you hadn't made your way into the Army, what do you think you would have done in life? Well... Nobody's ever asked me that question before. I don't know. I could be a park ranger at the National Park System. You know, I did. I, I was in scouting for, for, you know, all of my years growing up, and I enjoyed being outdoors. I liked nature. I liked hiking. I liked camping. Uh, so probably something in that theme would have drawn me into something after, other than military service. Now, you know a little bit about recruiting. You were a recruiter in Lima, Ohio in 1982. And to set the scene for the audience here, this is the time of the infamous Be All That You Can Be campaign, and it was, which was responsible for getting me in the Army, that and the movie Stripes. Um, tell us about how you felt during that campaign and how that campaign changed the perception of the Army in the eyes of America and the people you were trying to recruit. Sergeant so Major, you're exactly right. In that time, 1982... General Maxwell Thurman had been the commander of United States Army Recruiting Command and really shaped the 
fundamental change in how the Army recruited. They raised the standards for the scores on the entrance test, the ASVAB test, uh, raised the requirement that said, with few exceptions, you have to be a high school diploma graduate. That was a fundamental change for the for the army, mm-hmm. and in and caused the the way that recruiters recruited to fundamentally change. Spending a lot of time now in high schools and junior colleges, uh, more so than than in in other locations, uh, speaking to civic groups about the changing nature of the Army. And importantly, as you mentioned, the rollout of the be-all-you-can-be recruiting uh, advertising campaign, which really captured the nation. I mean, everybody in the nation knew be-all-you-can-be. And so it was a very interesting time and a very interesting transition point for the Army uh, that I think served it well. And that turned out to be very successful, and we had we had some good successes in my two years in recruiting command. Sir, now we've worked together for several years, both in the military and outside of it. And I know you've mentored a lot of people throughout your career and had a lot of conversations. But I'm going to throw the tough question at you today. What does service mean to you? I think that changed over the over the time of my service. When I first started out. It was really go get your life together and figure out where you want to head. Uh, that changed over time to feeling valuable as a member of a team that was committed to a noble purpose, the defense of our nation. Much of my service was during the Cold War. Much of that service was in Europe. The Cold War was real. We could see the fence. We could see the minefields. We could see the guard posts. We knew that that war in Europe was was likely. That gave us real common purpose, and I valued that. As I uh, gained in seniority, uh, and particularly as I entered the ranks of the general officers, uh, I think I became to appreciate more deeply how valuable the all-volunteer force is to the ideals of our nation. And it's still to this day, now uh, 10 years into retirement, it is still to me one of the American miracles that every day young women and men step up and raise their right hand and say, send me. I will choose to defend our nation, just as the Army motto says, this will defend. And almost all of them have lots of other options, but something in them has called them to serve the nation. That is just extraordinary and something we should never take for granted. Uh, And we, as a nation, Uh, should, must, in my view, continue to support the all-volunteer force. I can't think of a better answer than that. Now, sir, I have one final question, perhaps the most important question of them all. Our listeners heard that you grew up in Cleveland, and you spent a lot of your time in the state of Ohio, which neighbors my home state, Pennsylvania. So here's the question. When those two rivalries come together, 
there's without a doubt for all of our listeners to know that you are cheering for the greatest football team that ever existed. Penn State, right? Honestly, I, I didn't know that 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 junior college had a football team. Um, my best friend in my best friend in high school and the best man at at our wedding played football for the Ohio State University under the under the days of old old Woody Hayes. So though I didn't go to Ohio State, I, I've been a great fan of that university and been pretty much opposed to. Uh, there's a, a small university north of Ohio that. Uh, uh, seeks every now and then to challenge uh, the Ohio State University's primacy, but that that's always been short-lived. And for our listeners out there, and I'm sure most of you are already aware, the Michigan-Ohio-Pennsylvania tri-state rivalry is uh, alive and well, but we all know who will be the victor the next time they meet on any of the sport battlefields, but we won't continue the discussion. I'll allow General Ham um, to have his Ohioan glory. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to take another opportunity to thank our guest today, General Retired Carter Ham, um, for his incredible service and sacrifice to our great nation, this association, and American people. He is a soldier for life. Sir, thank you. Thank you very much, uh, SMA Daily. It's been an honor and privilege to be here with you. Did you know, as a member of AUSA, you have access to many benefits? From car rental to entertainment discounts, the opportunities are ample. Visit ausa.org slash benefits to learn more. Welcome back. And we're here with our next guest, someone Les and I know very well. And you know, Dan, this guy has the hardest job in the Army, trying to bring the Army staff and the Secretary together. And I've seen him do it. What a hard job he has. To say that's the hardest job is actually an understatement. It's it's uh, it's it's beyond that. It's hard to describe. The director of the army staff has yeah. to. Ha, it's a very complex position, isn't it? It is very complex. It's, yeah, yeah. Um, I agree. We often I, say that uh, when the chief and the secretary don't want to do something, the das gets to do it. Yeah, that's right. The das. The das. The das. The das. We both for everybody. We worked in the army staff quite a bit, so we've seen the the dad so his predecessor do the task and and there's no one better than the one we have today should we introduce him dan yeah I, i'll tell you he's got a he's got a great story great leader um through decades of service to our decades. united states army continuing to serve to this day and we know he's going to continue to be a soldier for life when he transitions ladies and gentlemen let's welcome to the army matters podcast show lieutenant general pyatt sir welcome to the show well thanks for having me it's good to be here well sir you know we'll start off the show like we normally do um Tell us your Army journey. Why did you join the United States Army? When did that happen and how did it come about? Well, it happened when I was still a senior in high school. So I enlisted under the, the delayed entry program on 15 February 1979. I'll never forget that date. And I shipped out on 1 August 1979, which was my mom and dad's anniversary. So mom wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> I remember being just taken away with army posters and looking at soldiering, no matter what it was. And I just remember my strong desire to just want to serve. But they, I was 17. My parents had to sign for me. My mom was reluctant until she met the army recruiter. You know, he came to our house and she saw a person 
a husband, a father, and she knew that you could you weren't gonna she wasn't gonna lose her son to the army. She was gonna gain something from that. I, I'll never forget the, how the, the recruiter impressed my mother, and uh, and talk her into giving up her baby, her only boy, to the United States Army. Excellent, sir. And sir, you went on to be commissioned and have an incredible career spanning across uh, the world and the globe. And I have to admit something. I, I didn't know this about you. Of course, we worked together, known each other for years, but you wrote a book. And I didn't know that. Neither did I. Until I prepped for this yeah. podcast today. So why, why do you think that's the case? Is it because he's shy or because we wanted us to buy it later? What do you think? Well, I would be honest. He's not going to brag about himself, but I'm impressed, sir. You wrote a book about the wolfhound, so your experience <laughs> in, in Afghanistan. Why did you feel compelled to write that book? Well, here's another surprise. Actually, I've written two books. What? <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> so my first one. I wrote my first one. Both were about Afghanistan, though. I wrote my first one after my first deployment there with the 10th Mountain Division right after 9-11. Mm -hmm. And it was a series of, of letters and poems uh, that I wrote to my wife and my family and about the soldier wow. experience in combat. And my father convinced me that uh, we need to get this published. And so we did. It was just through a self publishing company. And if I had to make a living as an author, I'd be a very poor individual, I'll tell you that. But the second one was when I deployed to Afghanistan as a battalion commander. And seeing, you know, how soldiers deal with combat and, and all that comes with it and how the families deal with it, it just moved me. That book is a series of short stories and poetry uh, that I wrote to try to capture the soldier experience in, in war. And I just happened to be fortunate to be the battalion commander of 2nd Battalion, 27th Infantry Wolfhounds. And I was so inspired by the people I served with. But, you know, you could understand everything to go through, and that's what made me admire them all much more. And I just thought that story had to be told. And, and when I wrote it, I, I was put in contact with some, some agents to explore it, and they, they read my draft and wanted to change it drastically. I, they were talking about making it a nonfiction, maybe get it to sell more, and I just, I said no. I wanted it to be the words that I wrote down at a time when I was feeling them. And what I learned later on that writing was very therapeutic for me. It was very helpful to me to get these thoughts out in writing. And just recently, um, Military Review published a series dedicated to war poetry since 9-11. They asked me to write the forward for it. They included some of my early poetry from the time in Afghanistan, but they captured service members. Uh, since 9-11, who have written their thoughts down. And it's just, it's, it's fantastic. I encourage everybody to look at it because it's a, it's a wonderful collection of soldiers' emotions as they were going through some of the most difficult things they've ever been through. So what's the name of the book? I mean, the first poem book. The first book was called She Came to the Door to Wave Goodbye, and literally because I left at two in the morning. And as I left, my wife was asleep, but she came running out of the door and I missed it. And I, as the van rolled away, I just remember, oh, I hope I see her again it just moved me and i just remember yeah. writing about that and then the second one is called Paktika. yeah uh, the story of second battalion 27 infantry wolfhounds okay it's incredible sir you say you write as part of your therapy it's uh, you know every soldier i think needs an outlet yes in saying that too i think that after being the dash knowing the challenges of that position you're probably going to need about four books yeah. um about I think being more, the dash more than that yeah yeah <laughs> four one for every about. year maybe maybe four is <laughs> enough i don't know yeah. i don't know <laughs> Well, I am working on one, so I, I hope to uh, get oh. it out fairly soon. Hopefully, we're not in it, Dan. What do you think? Uh, I know, well, yeah, that's mm. right. I'm probably that villain. I'm the villain. I'm the <laughs> no, villain in that book. No, no, I'm the villain. Remember yeah. my job. Okay. Yeah, that's, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
Now, I know we're here to talk about the anniversary of the all-volunteer force, but before we do, I have to ask one question. What would you say was one of the biggest mistakes you made and the lessons you learned from it? I made a lot of mistakes. I make mistakes every day, but I think leaders need to be able to talk about and show their vulnerabilities to be able to show that to the force. I made a terrible mistake in, in combat, actually. It was during, it was summer, June 2004. Uh, I was in southern Pectica province in a place called Terwa. Uh, it was a very bad place. I'd been blown up there uh, uh, very badly, uh, but we were trying to reshape the dynamics of this very difficult place. Uh, an area called Baluchistan, actually, because it, it bordered Pakistan and southern Afghanistan, uh, a lot of tribal foes. And normally we put ourselves in a position, uh, you know, in terrain where you're either dominating complete high ground or you're next to a, a small town where, you know, you just butt yourself up against something. So it would be, you, you might cause harm to your own people or your own stuff before you'd get attacked. I was commanding the wolfhounds and I put us in a very bad position. And I knew, I knew what I did. And, and, and I thought we could, you know, we were trying to get this tribe to come and, you know, really talk to us. We were trying to bring some stability to the area where we had been in lots of firefights. It just wasn't a good place. But we were, the perimeter was secure. We had good outposts and everything, but I knew we were a bit vulnerable. And that night we paid for it. We got attacked and it was brutal. I'll never forget, you know, the, a gun truck coming up and I could see it outside the perimeter. I could see the rocket fire from it like it was yesterday. And if the muzzle flash of it, it headed right toward us and right towards me and it, it missed and went past. Then the mortar started to fall like everywhere. So, and, and luckily about 50% of them were duds. That was probably what saved the lives that night. And I remember being just completely stupid, just full of bravado. I jumped on the top of my Humvee and I was yelling and the soldiers thought I was being brave. Uh, I knew I was responsible and, and fortunately we didn't lose anyone that night. And I kept thinking after that, how would I have ever explained that to mom and dad that their son isn't coming home because of a mistake I made and knew better. And every time I knew that even if I had to give ground uh, to be right and to preserve the force so we could fight another day, it was okay, it was acceptable. I learned not to act brave, but to be brave. Now, while early in the show, we talked with General Ham about the all-volunteer force and why the Army went that way. You enlisted a few years after that. Now, Walt, did you, you have both drafted and all-volunteer force soldiers in your units? Can you tell me how they performed? I remember in the 82nd, our platoon sergeant was drafted, saw, saw service in Vietnam, but wanted to stay in. You know, he, he found the profession after being drafted. Uh, many of them were. Uh, we looked up to him, our first sergeant. All the NCOs seemed to be you know, Vietnam veterans. Uh, they found a home in the Army, right. and, they, and right. they inspired me that this was not just an Army, an infantry, airborne unit. This was a family. And I, I think we'll come to that differently, but once we get there, it's a bond like no other. Yeah. My high school ROTC instructor was a Vietnam vet. He was about five, six or five, seven, but we were so afraid of him. But it was, it was the lessons that he learned is what he taught us. So give us some of your viewpoints of other countries. You don't have to mention any ones about mandatory service requirements. You know, we've talked about a little bit. What do you, what do you think is a pro or con of that? 
Well, there's a lots of pros in watching how some of these countries do it. They 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 have a professional recruiting, but their sm- armies are small. So some some have mm-hmm. you take a test in in your equivalent of a high school. Yeah. And the highest scores will be compelled to do military service, like Brazil and other nations. They do these things, and to me, I yeah. I don't I don't find anything wrong with that if that's the way you're going to have a service. And they get placed in other. And some countries do it where you'll be placed in other government institutes to go serve. And a lot of people say there's a lot of goodness to that. Yeah. They wish we would do that in the United States. So I've seen it where it could be good. Mm-hmm. But again, it's it's they're small armies. They can manage it. And it's it's like selected service where, and you're proud to be selected. Uh, other countries, I think you're seeing that what happens with Russia when you mm-hmm. just conscript folks and they're not trained. You don't treat them well. It's not a professional force. They don't fight well. Yeah, they're more afraid of their own chain of command than they are the enemy, because they're treated very poorly. Yeah, we're not just bodies to be sent to the front line. Any any nation that does that is not an army. It's not a professional army. And I think you can see, you may have you know great strategists. You you may think you have great equipment, but if you don't have people with the will to fight, dedicated to the the, the cause and purpose of their own nation. It's just not going to be an effective army, and and I think that's why we had that conversation fifty years ago in our own in our own country, and came to the conclusion the profession of arms is more valuable. It's what that's the better way to defend the nation than to force people into service. That's great. So what is that? What's our great army doing to celebrate the fiftieth anniversary of the move to the all volunteer force? I know you know because the DAS knows everything. It comes up on one July. Actually, it's been a month-long celebration. So we've been doing this now for actually a couple months, tied to other significant yeah, anniversaries. Yeah. This today we're doing a celebration for women and okay. serve a 75-year anniversary, 75-year passing the Integration yes. Act as well. So mm-hmm. big anniversaries this year. Plus the anniversary of coming out of Vietnam, uh, and then during the Army Birthday Celebration Week, it's really been an Army Birthday mm-hmm. Celebration Month, and, and all volunteer force is one of the things that we are indeed celebrating. Because because it is this profession. But it's also reminding us how much more we have to do. Our, our recruiting shortfalls last year and this year as well, and, and mm-hmm. the projection for next year isn't all that much better, is reminding us that we, we've got to double down and reintroduce America to, to her army. And, and it's not just army, big symbol, the star, and uh, uh, commercials or big tanks. The army is people. Were people that came from small towns all over this United States, were people that didn't have purpose. We needed something. And the Army gave that to us. It, it doesn't mm-hmm. matter, you know, what your last name is or what your social yeah. standing is or what your gender or your race. In the Army, it's a level playing field. And you come in here and you get treated with dignity and respect, but we do hard things. Uh, and we do hard things exceptionally well in the Army. That's why I love it. That's right. The big thing we're doing this year is really to try to introduce our America to its army again and to, to show younger people who have desires to do something, want to, they want to find purpose, they want to find service, that the army is a good path towards that. Because a lot of young mm-hmm. people today, they just they don't feel they can find purpose in the army. It's going to delay okay. them in life. It's going to put their life on hold. And I, I nothing could be further from the truth. And I, I'm an example of that. I, I found purpose and meaning, friends, you know, everything that I, I would not have been able to do, I was able to do because I joined the Army. Yeah. We all think all on this this podcast today uh, represent that that piece. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. 
so just a couple more things before we close out. We want to be cognizant of your time. So, so Walt, you know, um, you've done a lot of great things. So what would you tell somebody who's thinking about service? Why is service important to America today? Yeah, for me, the, the purpose I found was to do things for others. Okay. It's not about, you know, personal wealth or gain. I saw this in my friends at high school reunions. Most of them catapulted up to very important jobs with good paying jobs with nice cars and big houses. Mm -hmm. And there I would come back to these reunions, you know, just still in the army, still mm -hmm. in the army. And they're like, what are you going to do next, brother? Yeah, and they, yeah, you know, yeah. But they all came back to me, uh, especially this past week or past Memorial Day when I was home. I, I, my sister had to get together and lots of my friends from my high school class were there. And they all said how much they envied me and how, how happy I always was. And what I, what I found was just purpose and the power of doing something that's bigger than yourself. And it, it just, it helps to find you and you're, and you're next to people who have the same ideas that you have. They just, they're there, they're, they're selfless servers. I don't know of any other profession that puts you into places where you can actually do good for others as you can in the army. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, sir, thanks for coming on the show today, and, and thanks for your incredible service as both enlisted and an officer for decades um, to this great army and our great nation. Did you have fun today? I had a blast. So today I was being all I can be, so thank you for having me. That's good. To all our listeners, thanks for joining us. Army Matters is brought to you by the Association of the United States Army the U.S. Army's Professional Association, member-supported, Army-connected. Visit us at AUSA.org for more information or to become a member. Your membership helps AUSA continue to carry out its mission, educate, inform, and connect with the total Army, our industry partners, and supporters of a strong national defense. Today's episode was hosted by Lieutenant General Retired Les Smith and SMA Retired Dan Daly an anchor hosted by Carrie Barrow-Heckes. Unzinga Curry is the executive producer, and the senior producers are Carrie Barrow-Heckes and LaSharon Duncan. Special thanks to Colonel Retired Scott Halstead and Major Retired Patrick Scanlon for their help. Be sure to subscribe to Army Matters wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave a review. As you know, we love seeing stars in the Army, especially if it comes in the form of a five-star review. AUSA's Army Matters podcast, primary purpose is to entertain. The podcast does not constitute advice or services. While guests are invited to listen, listeners, please note that you're not being provided professional advice from the podcast or the guest. The views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views of AUSA. For questions or to provide topic recommendations, email us at podcast at AUSA.org. I'm with Sharon Duncan. Hope you have a great Army day. Hua.